we are excited to introduce to you Prophetic Edge, where we are going to be digging into the revelation of God's Word and what it looks like to walk in victory through the Word of God. Whenever God is ready to move in Scripture and bring victory to people, He always brings a fresh edge of revelation. Well, bless the Lord, everybody. It is so good to be with you one more time. We are excited and we are thankful. And as always, it's time for Wednesdays in the Word. Now, I don't know what's going on in your world, but I know this. Victory comes from God. I know that no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're hearing, no matter what you're walking through, there is victory in the presence of God and there is strategy in the Word of God. So if you don't know what to do, stop. Talk to God. Let him speak to you. The same answer works. The question might change, but the answer is the same. Jesus. He's what you need. He's who you call on, and he'll be there in a moment's notice. All right, wherever you are, as always, you need to share this. Get this on your page. Go ahead and tag someone who needs a word from the Lord. Tonight, we're going to dig into something that if you or people you know have been interested in international events, what's happening in the world. Most of the time when we talk about prophetic teaching and prophetic programming, I'm going to dig into scripture and we're going to talk about a point or a theme. But many times as I've listened to many of the, I call them the prognosticators and the purveyors of prophetic truth out there in the world, many of them are fantastic. But there is a view that many of the prophets are taking on international events that has become almost one-sided where everybody is talking what they want to see God do rather than just taking scripture and opening it up saying, here's what the Lord said was going to happen. And here's where we are in the midst of it. One of the greatest teachers on the prophetic mind was a man of God called Derek Prince. Derek Prince was brilliant. He was phenomenal. And, and I'm, I'm thrilled because we have more people who are here tonight. We're starting to open back up on Wednesdays. And so we, we got some prophetic folks in the house who know what the Lord says. They, you know, they read their Bibles. If you read your Bible, you, you don't get lost too much. <laughs> the Bible does help. <laughs> I don't believe in prophetic people who don't stay in their word. You get strange if you don't stay in your book. Now, here's where it comes good. Derek Prince said this. He says, two things have to be clear if you're going to move with God in his season, if you're going to be truly prophetic. The first thing he said was, you have to remember that scripture is the foundation of understanding the mind of God. Outside of the word of God, it's conjecture. You're guessing games. You're hoping you're right. And remember this, outside of understanding God from the biblical lens, you will always lay your culture or your history or your national pride over top of what the word says. So you create a view of God based on your culture, your color, your nation or your history, because we all do that. If you don't make God your primary lens, you will see through what's normal for you. That's the human model. The human model is when we eat food we're not used to, we we hold it up to the light of what's normal. So this doesn't taste like what I grew up with, so it's too spicy. 
But if you're from a culture that uses hot peppers and everything, when you eat it the first time, you go, it could use some more spice. So who's right? Neither. The truth is you're judging it from your history. Unless you understand that the foundation of that recipe came from that country, and this is how it's traditionally been made, then you don't value it or devalue it based on your history. You see it for what it is. This is how it's made. So this is good for this dish. But for me in my house, I can add some more spice. What's the difference? In your church or in your community, you might have to spice up the worship or spice it down. You might need to run or you might need to sit still. But in the biblical model, the Bible says when you come to God, open your mouth. So the Bible says you were too quiet, not the church, the Bible. See, if you see it from the biblical perspective, everything you are judging about another becomes unnecessary. Because from the biblical model, it doesn't matter how you see it. I have to do it the way God spoke it. So he makes it clear to us, Derek Prince, to understand God's mind, you have to understand the word. Don't guess with God. (laughs) I will say that one more time. Please don't guess with God. It's a horrible thing to tell the only person in the universe who has all the power to give you all the victories that, oh, I didn't know you wanted me to do that. Please don't miss your victory because you're playing guessing games with the only person who gave you exactly what could get you your victory. Don't guess with God. Read his word. He's clear. Secondly, to understand the mind of God in prophetic culture, you must understand Israel. I'm going to say that clear. If you don't understand Israel, the role of Israel in the mind of God, the role of Israel in biblical history, and the role of Israel in today's world, you either do one of two things. You either value Israel too much, and in your mind, Israel can do no wrong, and Israel has a different covenant than we have. That's wrong teaching. That's erroneous. That is the mindset that God values Israel more than us. That's not true. But if you try to devalue Israel, many of the prophetic veins now are trying to say that Israel doesn't matter. We've become the new Israel. It only matters what the church does. That is erroneous doctrine. That is nullification. Now, because you don't like the way Jewish people behave or you think they somehow don't deserve the covenant God gave them, you want to nullify. One exalts, the other nullifies. Again, that's not our job. Our job is to view Israel through the biblical lens. The biblical lens is Israel was not a nation that already existed until God spoke to a man to come out from his people and build him a nation, Abraham. God decided that he needed a man. Then God decided he needed faith in the earth. So he breathes into Abraham a new model. Abraham begins to walk out that model. God decides he would bring out Abraham's children, the Israelites, that he might establish them a place, Israel, and he gives them a law, the Old Testament. So remember, if you're going to nullify the value of Israel in God's eyes, you have to nullify everything God gave Israel to then give to us. So the biblical model is you must understand the word and you must understand Israel. 
If those two things do not carry value for you as a foundational principle as you walk with God, then prophecy will always be something you use to get people to see your way. Ooh. (laughs) See, if you're not having the right foundation, prophecy to you is your way of getting people to see God the way you see him so they can eventually see you the way you want to be seen so you can eventually get people to believe what you already believed. So in essence, you're creating your own movement under God's banner. Because what the prophets of the Bible knew was that even when Israel was a mess, God said, don't curse them. I need them to exist. Why? Because there's a model I need to reproduce in the earth that I have a branch that shall come out of Israel, but they can't come out of Israel if you curse Israel. So I need Israel to be blessed so that I can show people what mercy looks like. So mercy was revealed in Israel, but salvation was revealed to the church. Ah, <laughs> yes. Thank you, Patrick. But that's good. See, but the beauty of it is it's, it's true because it's the word. He says to Israel, I have been merciful to you as I would have covered you like a hen would cover her chicks. How long, O Israel, will you say no to me when I have come to cover you? That is the act of mercy. It's the covering act. How do we know that? That's the language of a priest because it was the mercy seat that covered them. So he was saying, I have come to be the mercy seat. I wanted to cover you underneath me. If they had been listening, they would have known he was speaking prophetically because what did you apply to the mercy seat? The blood. He was saying to them, I came to cover you by my blood covering me so that when God looked at you, he only saw you through me. But since you don't want to be covered, I've got to cover them that will come. So my blood will cover everybody out outside of Israel, why God keeps wooing you to himself. So I'm not throwing you away because you were the only vehicle I could come through. So I can't throw you out, but I can't let you in till you see me. Woo! So God proclaims Israel is not a throwaway, but the church is not a replacement. That's why he says it's one new man. He's married us. Oh, Lord, have mercy. I feel like teaching tonight. See, he's married us. So the one new man is the marriage of two covenants. The first covenant he gave was not to Israel. The first covenant God gave was to Adam. Ah, He says to Adam, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to not kill you when I should kill you. But what did he do for Adam? The Bible says when God made man, all of this is part of the prophetic realm we're going into. You have to understand from the beginning what God's plan was. God's plan was he's going to make a man who is going to reproduce his own likeness. God made man in his image, but men were going to then make men, children, So God says, you are now going to become me in the earth. 
Adam, you will take over. Eve, you and he will be one in the earth. Now, as you take over, you will multiply, replenish, repopulate. So you are going to fill the earth with your children and the earth will yield to you because you have my authority in the earth. So what does that mean? In essence, he was already saying every nation has already been created to serve the purpose of men who carry my image. That never changed. He never took back his permission for us to rule. So when Adam sinned, what did God do? This is the beauty of the covenant. God says, I'm not going to destroy you. But the first promise he says is all the stuff of you're going to have children. It'll be hard labor. Y'all will struggle against each other. But what's the last thing he said? He says, now to the serpent, the woman's son, his heel will crush your head. Now, the Bible says in Hebrews, God was not speaking to many sons as plural, but he was speaking about one, a seed that shall come. So who was the seed or the son that would come from the woman? Jesus. So in the beginning of creation, God himself prophesied about himself coming as a son. So he's speaking to Eve. You shall have a son, a son who was going to be the son. So the son has a heel that will crush the devil's head. So Jesus was prophesied from day one that he would come with a government on his shoulders and a foot that would crush the devil's head. So for all of you out there that think God didn't have a plan, that the garden shocked him, that man in all of his wickedness messed up the plan of God. You have not been listening. For everybody who sees something happening in Russia or China and you lose your mind and you go on TV and you begin to teach about the world is about to end. It's over, y'all. It's just gotten so bad. I don't even want to leave my house. You haven't been listening. God was not shocked. He knew what was coming and he said, a son. A son being the son. The son would put his foot on the head of the devil. When he put his foot on the head of the devil, then we who were born again got pulled into the son. Ah, know ye not that ye belong to Christ. As many as have been baptized into him have risen in him. So you are now the likeness of Jesus in the earth. What does that mean? It's now your foot on the head of the devil. Just to make that clear, Romans 16, 19, and the God of peace shall soon crush Satan underneath your feet, not his feet, your feet. So the foot of the church is the foot of Jesus on the head of the devil, crushing him in nations, destroying him in territories. So this is why prophetic understanding is so important. You will never take a stand where you do not believe you have power. You will never take a stand where you do not believe you have power. So the church has given up territory for hundreds of years in nations, 
because we started to believe we were powerless, hopeless, without an avenue. We gave up authority. In many instances, when you look at history, the church was not as active in World War II's time as we should have been. The church was not as active in Germany as it should have been. The church was not as active in Eastern Europe as it should have been. Not because of persecution. Because when things got dark, the church got hopeless. And when the church ran for cover, it left whole nations uncovered. Woo! The devil didn't have power because he was great. He had power because we were afraid. Where the church is present, darkness cannot rule long. When the church is absent, darkness has permission in absence to be loud. Darkness has permission in absence of the church to make itself known. Our voice must be the only voice, the voice of the Lord through his people. Why? Because two voices cannot compete long. One voice will always rule. I'm going to say this last thing. Is this all right so far? Okay. You must remember something. When the Bible talks about strong men or a stronghold, whenever we teach on that, many of us in the room, we've all been in strong prophetic teaching on prayer and intercession and and the kingdom of God. But very often when we hear teaching on strongholds or strong men, it's always negative. We teach on strong men about the strong man that must come down or the stronghold that must be moved. The Bible does not teach that strong men are negative. Hear me. A strong man is a term simply for the person of power who has the ability to rule. That's what the term means. It is the one who was strong enough to take a territory. So it's not a negative. But because when it's used in Scripture, God is trying to tell the church, you need to push the strong man out of the territory, then the church's mentality has become for years, oh, no, we got to deal with the strong men. No, what Jesus was telling them, you have the strength to become the strong man. And if you become the strong man, then the church becomes the stronghold. So there's no reason for us to be driving through cities going, the strong man over this city is depression. Well, then push that sucker out of your atmosphere and make the strong man joy. Let the stronghold become the people of God. When suicide has been the strong man, push him out and make life the strong man. The difference in a church that runs and a people that stand is your belief system. The difference is who's teaching you and what you're willing to listen to. So I want to say this as we get ready to dig into this. If you are being taught by weak need, mealy mouthed apologetic preachers who apologize for the blood and make excuses for the Holy Ghost, who don't believe God heals anymore and he doesn't deliver, then you need to understand something. They're only still talking because you're still listening. So why are you listening to people who 
cut the cross down foot by foot every year. Who chopped down the authority of the Holy Ghost and who convinced you to stay bound. Why in the world are you listening to them? Leave while you still believe God is real. Leave with your faith intact and then become who God has called you to be. Woo, become the strong man. Because only one strong man can rule the territory. I'm going to say something I don't normally say. There was one night I was here at the church. Now, the beauty of living right by him, by this place. Some of y'all know exactly where I live. I always say by the place because I don't need none of y'all trying to visit. I used to have that. Folk would show up middle of the night. Oh, yes. I had a group of folks who showed, showed up one night and called me. Uh, man of God, where are you? I said, why? Well, we're, we're at the church and we won't know if you can come pray for us. I said, no. <laughs> I said, no, no. I said, if you was really in prayer, God would have told you that don't work on me. <laughs> now, here's why I say this. One night I'm in the house. And I began to feel this agitation. It was 3.15 in the morning. I get up and I begin to walk around and I'm praying and the Lord said, you've got to deal with it now. I said, deal with what? He said, there's been a stronghold, a strong man that used to come through this valley and would push ministries. I said, what do you mean? He said, think back, has there been any strong prophetic ministry that lasted long in this valley? Now, y'all have lived here longer than me. You know, no. It was about my seventh year in this valley. I said, oh, the Lord says, now you have to deal with it. He comes, see, I, I want to help some of you. The Lord said, the spirit has the right to test you, but he cannot touch you. This is about kingdom authority. He can't touch you. He only works by fear. All spirits in the enemy's camp work by fear. Everything he does, he's the father of lies. So in the kingdom of the enemy, his intention is he comes to intimidate fear. And if he can cause fear to rule your mind, your response is then to flee. Fear makes you flee. If you flee, he only has permission in your absence. Not because he had more authority than the church, not because he had greater power. He simply played the waiting game. He kept throwing stuff in your view. And one day you woke up and got afraid enough to give up your territory. You gave up your marriage, your house, your children, your money, because enough fear plagued you that you responded in fear. Well, no, it wasn't fear. It was my sickness. Oh, it was still fear because that sickness tormented you long enough that you finally said, I'm going to die. And when you said out of your mouth, I'm going to die, the devil said, I finally got him. It was fear that made you make the wrong announcement. It was fear that made you say, oh, my kids ain't never going to get saved. That was fear. So fear is the primary agent in the enemy's kingdom. Faith is the only economy of God. So if you're going to deal with God, 
Faith is the only thing he responds to. It is the currency of heaven. Fear is how the enemy traffics. Faith is how God moves. Humans are always stuck between fear and faith. So you have to train your mind to become normal in the realm of faith, or you will find on your bad days, fear starts bubbling up. And if you let fear bubble up and come out of your mouth, remember this, the devil cannot read your mind. He is not omniscient. But what he can read is your emotions. Because your emotions will always show up on your face, your body language, how you respond to people. So when you start freaking out, talking crazy, acting foolish with your friends, being short with people, all of that is a sign. And the enemy goes, oh, oh, I didn't know I was winning. I didn't know this worked on them. I didn't know this would produce. But since it got this kind of reaction, let me keep going. What does that have to do with international events? Some of what we see happening now on the world stage is simply a revelation that the enemy has found some things that work. So he keeps pushing, excuse me, he keeps pushing buttons. And in America, we have become easily provoked. We watch the news not to learn how to pray or what to declare. We watch the news so we can have something to argue about. We watch the news to have something to talk about at work. So when we get to work, the first thing we do is, how many of y'all, when you talk to your friends, the first thing you do is tell them good news? Or when you talk to someone, if you've heard bad news, the bad news is normally what you talk about most. Mm-hmm. That has been our conditioning. So what does, I want you to hear this. Again, the devil is not all powerful. He has actually very little power. He has great loudness, but not legal authority. He's a loud lion. <laughs> but he's a chained lion. Oh. What happens to us? We've been conditioned through political environments, through fear-based teaching, through erroneous doctrine, to hear bad news and begin to believe, oh no, this is the way we're going. So that every generation, parents, before you had children, Things that people would say is, I don't want to bring a child into a world like this. I don't want to see a child grow up in a world so bad. Now, I don't know what world you're living in. My world's all right. No, I'm, I'm serious. There's bad things happening in the world, but my world is pretty good. I've got good friends. I've got good people around me. If I see somebody crazy, guess what? Crazy ain't making it into my house. It's not difficult to raise people in a healthy environment if you're healthy. But if you're not healthy, your mindset becomes everything I see in the world is going to bleed into my house. But for somebody healthy, oh, I know what to do. Don't put that on TV. Don't let them listen to that and create an environment that's healthy. The same thing is true in the world. Okay. So let's talk about a few things. 
when we look at culture and we look at history, some of how we got here is some of the first things we want to talk about is how did the church age or the history of the church look like it's looking now? The level of influence and the level of power. Now, I've touched on this before, but I want to go back. When the church began, Jesus sends them out and he says, go out and go out with power. Then the Holy Ghost begins to fall upon them, and he does bring this glorious kingdom into the lives of men, and they become carriers of the kingdom. These carriers of the kingdom, suddenly and without permission from nations, they invade the nations of the known world, and within a hundred years, they turn the whole world upside down, to the point that when Paul is standing before Agrippa, they begin to make statements like this, you are part of the people who have turned the world upside down. Paul, you are of the way. How have y'all done this? Now, Paul was less than 60 years later. I want you to think about that. Within 60 years, they have brought the gospel with such power that the rulers of nations are telling Paul, you people have changed everything. Think about that. Now, here we are 2,000 years later. How many groups of believers do you know that kings would sit in their presence and say, my nation is different just because y'all are here? How many prayer groups are praying right now And prison doors are shaking open. Earthquakes are rattling cities because they decided to pray at midnight. So the question must become not what happened to the kingdom, not what happened to God. The question is what happened to us? The truth is we listened to the wrong voices. We allowed mixture to come in among us and our hearts got softened, our faith got quiet, the power got diminished, and we started treating the Bible like it was a book of stories rather than a map to greatness. This is not a book of stories. It is an invitation to your real life. It's an invitation to you becoming who God always said you were supposed to be. It's an invitation and a revelation that if you walk the way of Jesus, you will become a person of power in the earth that the enemy cannot stop, that the world will lean on, and that nations will sit and hear your words if you choose to treat this as a manual and not a suggestion. This is not a suggestion. It's a manual to greatness. So the nations... When the church began to invade the nations, I touched this before, but let's talk about it. In around the year 300, I think it was 312 to 313. So between 312 and 314, what happened was you had Constantinople. And so you had Constantine. Now, Constantine has an encounter with the living true God of heaven. But his encounter did not lead to a full conversion. It led to him saying the church or Christians have truth. 
what is told is this, that he saw some vision of God in the heavens. When he saw this vision of God, he called upon the Lord. When he called upon the Lord, God revealed himself to him and told him, I am the Lord, bow your knees. So he goes and says to his mother, this is what happened to me. His mother, who had been heavily involved in the idolatry of the day, said to him, serve God, but make him your God. Hear what I'm saying. Make him your God. Not he is the only God. Make him your God. And what she did in the midst of that was say to all of the people, serve his God. But you don't have to throw away your idols. So as they went out to conquer, God now, who was with Constantine, but had not yet been revealed to the people as their God because it was not through the preaching of the gospel, it became a political edict. So it's the first time in history, after 300 years of the church having power, that politics became the ruling way of religion. So the politician of the day said to the people, God is your God now. Jesus is your God. When he made that announcement, he did not give them permission to seek God on their own, and he did not bring priests and prophets in to teach. He simply made it a political edict. If God is now your choice, you have to introduce the word of God into the lives of the people so that they can have an encounter with God themselves. That is not what was done. They were told to become Christians. This now made that nation, in their view, Christian. When you make an, a Christian, when you make a nation Christian by edict and in name, without people having encounters, you are creating a political mask, but not a religious reality. So we now have conquering nations that command that you become Christian, but don't produce the doctrine that you can live by that will hold you. This led to what we then have is the development of icons. Ah, some of you know where I'm going. These icons now begin to be what was the icon. The icon was they would then put up pictures of the saints. They would make statues of the saints, of Jesus and of Mary. That's when it began. But they only made those statues because inside of the statue of the saints, they would hide the small idol of the God they truly worshiped. Ah, we got to learn our history. So inside of the statues of the saints, they would hide the idol of their family, the idol of their city. So when the priest would come through the town to check if people were Christian, they would see the statues in the house and go, this is a Christian house. Because they've got John and Jesus and Bartholomew and Mary. And when the priest would leave, because you would be killed if you hadn't bowed to Jesus. When the priest would leave, the people would go, we got them. Because we bowed to Mary and Jesus and the saints, the apostles. But then inside of them, who they were bowing to was Ishtar or Ashtoreth or some other God who they hid 
Why? Because those gods don't care if you wrap Jesus around them. Ha! Woo! Those gods have nowhere in their teaching that you can't call on another God's name. Only Jesus comes along and says, if you're really going to love God, then you've got to love him with all your strength and all your heart, all your mind, and no other God can you serve. So you can hide in the church with other gods. <laughs> you can hide. You can hide your politics. You can hide abuse. You can hide child abuse. You can hide messing with kids. You can hide pornography. You can hide stealing money. You can hide all that in the church. Why? Because we've taught you systematically that we really don't care how you live at home. As long as you show up on Sunday and put some money in the basket. Why? Because we switched from being a kingdom that served a king into a people who were politically motivated just to get together. So we yielded to a spirit that was sent to infect the church to corrupt our authority. Because the enemy remembered in the garden, I heard the God of the universe say to that woman, this child who shall one day come shall crush your head and then they're going to take the nations back. Well, Jesus on the cross crushed my head, but I got to keep them from taking back the nations. I've got to keep them fighting in a four wall building. I got to keep them yelling about what robes they wear or suits or whether to wear a town Sunday. I got to keep them yelling about whether full immersion or sprinkling with water. I got to keep them arguing about whether to call themselves a Baptist or a Methodist or Pentecost. I got to keep them screaming about speaking in tongues in public or no tongues. So while they're yelling about what God already said they could have, I'm going to take nations and have nations killing each other. So while the church is arguing about whether we speak in tongues, I'm going to go over in another nation and cause them to commit genocide and kill another 10,000 babies before they wake up and find out they're called to kill my kingdom. We have been duped, lied to, spun into shadows because we're letting the devil create the argument. When the truth is that sucker got punched in the mouth 2,000 years ago. And we've had authority the whole time. And we've been listening to the wrong people. So when this spirit came into the church and it began to corrupt the level of authority, it changed the model of what God gave us. Woo! I want to walk us somewhere tonight. So the church, instead of being the advancing governmental force, in the earth, became culturally motivated, economically driven, and then we began to split into sex groups based on what 
Now, hear how I say this. We split into groups based on what sin we chose to keep. (laughs) Now, I know ain't nobody ever talked about denominations like that. Oh, yes. We divided into groups based on what sin we wanted to keep. See, people didn't divide based on, oh, I'm just not sure whether the Lord wants us to baptize them in water. That's a lie. The early church for 400 years had no division. While being boiled in oil, fed to lions, chased from cities. There were Christian women in the early days that they would be put in prison when they knew they were pregnant. They would hold women in prison until the women were almost ready to deliver. And then they would bring them in public and cut the baby out of their womb. And the mother, while she was dying and watching her baby die, would say these words, I will not take back my profession of faith. I will see my child in heaven, but I will not back up from Jesus. And now we can't sit together because of whether somebody baptizes in Jesus' name or Father, Son, Holy Ghost? That's foolishness. So where did the division come from? It came from when we began to yield to the political spirit. We then created politicians in pulpits. See, you see where I'm going. So politicians in pulpits in those early days, why? Because priests then were not sent because they were anointed. When you have a nation saying that they are all Christian, but they have not yet heart changed, then the heads of the churches were appointed. The king chose who would be over cities to run the church. When the king started choosing, then to get the king's favor, I got to know what the king likes. So now the people who got appointed as the head of the churches began to participate in whatever was the private sin of the king because I need the king to know I'm not judging his sin. This is why if the king want to get rid of all his wives, I'll find a priest who will say divorce is okay. England. This is why if the sin of the king is he wants to sleep with girls and have girls that are too young, then I'll okay that in my country. Hello, Italy. This is why if it's about how much money we can take and then corruption, then the church begins to grow that way. Hello, Russia and the Catholic Church. This is why if it's about okaying racism and putting up with it, hello, church in America. So we begin to make excuses for the prevalent sin based on whether or not the politics demand my allegiance. So this teaching that we go, it was okay for that day because that was the sin of the day. That's a political argument. Because when Jesus showed up immediately and without barter, he sets women free. He didn't look to the political system and say, women are supposed to walk behind men. He says, daughter, who shall condemn thee? 
then neither do I. Go and sin no more. He meets the woman at the well and says, ah, today your life is changing. He sets women free. He sets the broken free. He finds a blind man that the political system and the religious system are convinced he sinned or his parents sinned. That's why he was born blind. Jesus walks into the middle of an argument says, I'm not even going to answer your question because your question demands a political agreement. This is not about sin. This is about a kingdom that's greater than your argument. So I'm going to restore his sight and let him tell you about my kingdom. Jesus is teaching us a new model that goes outside of politics, stands above national allegiance, and says there is a greater way. We must become the people who learn to live outside the arguments so that we can bring politics back to government. Hear how I said that. We're not after politics. We're after good government. We're not after cultural reformation. I'm a black man. I enjoy being black. I like being black. I should because I don't have no other choice. I mean, it's not like tomorrow I can wake up and go, hello, I am Latina, Latino, Hispanic. I can't wake up tomorrow and become something else. So pride in your culture is good. Hear how I say that. Whatever whatever your culture and your history, you should take pride in that and you should enjoy it. But never for one moment think that your culture takes precedence over the kingdom. The kingdom of God takes first place in all arguments, in all decisions, in all issues. I don't care if the person who was in the middle of that mess was black. I'm not taking their side till I find out if they're right. The kingdom. Who told the truth? I don't care. See, you've got to get back to the kingdom because some of us are making issues where there shouldn't be an issue. I had a friend call me, and I promise we're getting to this. But is this all right so far? We're laying foundation. I had a friend called me, and they were telling me what they had gone through, and they said, I know it happened to me because I was black. I said, well, there's a whole lot that's happened to me because I'm black. I said, trust me, I get it. I said, but can I ask you a question? He said, yeah. I said, when you walked into that room, that situation, what did you say? He said, what do you mean? I said, I've known you a long time. And black is not normally your issue. Your mouth is your issue. And you blame a whole lot on being black when you just haven't learned to talk to people the right way. He got real quiet. He said, oh, well, I never thought of that. I said, I know. That's why you keep having problems. I said, now tell me exactly what you said. He began to tell me. And what was hilarious, his wife was in the back. And she yells out, that's not what you said. (laughs) Now, here's why I'm saying that. Many of us don't realize because we have become in this day so culturally oversensitive. Hear me. We cannot be kingdom people. And yet every time we think there's a cultural offense, we step outside of this kingdom nature and deal with it in our skin, our nationality, our history. We can't revert to unsaved responses 
when we are a kingdom-minded people. Somewhere in here, we've got to walk this thing fully out. So we don't get to run at folk and act like I'm the next angry black man. I don't get to walk in a store. I had a lady cut me off in the store. Now, she saw I was reaching. I was reaching for a can of black-eyed peas. I was about to make some soup. I was reaching for the can of black-eyed peas. I had my heart on that can. That looked like the right can for me. It did. I tell you, Danny, that can was almost in my hand. I felt like God had connected me. And I had a song in my heart to the Lord. He know I was singing to him. My hand was going for that can of black-eyed peas. And she comes with the cart. She slams the cart. She reached past me. And she took the can. I said, I was canless. <laughs> Oh, oh, you got me. You got me. And I looked at her and I said, that's my can. She said, excuse me. I said, uh-uh, uh-uh, don't excuse me. That's my can. And I heard the Lord laughing at me. I'm serious. I heard him laughing. And I caught myself. I said, hold on. <laughs> I backed up from the lady with the cart. I said, Lord, are you laughing at me? The Lord said, I am. I said, why are you laughing? The Lord says, there's a hundred more cans of black eyed peas. <laughs> I said, but that was my can. He said, it was. He said, didn't you come into the store to buy some black? I said, yes. He said, have you paid for that can? I said, no. He said, then it's not yours. It's as much hers as it is. I said, oh. I said, ma'am, enjoy that can of black eyed peas. And she's walking off. Now, here's the thing. Coming right around the corner, her daughter goes, mama, mama. And she keeps walking. Mama, mama. She keeps walking. Mike, I almost called you this because of what had happened to you. The daughter walks up to her and I suddenly realize the lady is blind in one eye. Never even saw me. And pretty much deaf. The daughter was yelling. The woman couldn't hear because she left her hearing. Aid. And the Lord said, I let that happen to you. He said, because I need you to go to the next level of being unoffendable. Woo! To go where God needs us to go in this hour, as we dig into understanding the events internationally so that we can set our course correctly, we must become unoffendable. Too many times we're judging nations and cultures and leaders based on a previous undealt with offense. We were already mad about something, and now they become the issue. I have to say this, and we're going to dig into this, but this is good already. It's blessing me. I was laughing the other day because uh, there's a governor, I think governor of Louisiana, um, lady governor. She's a phenomenal lady, great teacher, but she is hilarious. And she did a commercial where <laughs> she says, 
you know, I'm going to run for governor again this year. I'm going to need y'all's votes. And my daddy told me if you don't have nothing good, not to say nothing. And so uh, all I want to say about President Biden is, And then she looked at the camera and said, as we say in the South, God bless his heart. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best. And I don't have a problem with President Biden. God bless you, sir. I don't know what you have to deal with. I don't know all the warfare going on. All I know is whoever's in the White House, I'm praying for you. I pray blessing on you. But it's the first time I've seen a politician not take a moment to be negative. She sat in front of the camera and didn't say a word for 10 whole seconds and then said, well, God bless his heart. And as the camera went off, she said, I sure am praying for him. Now, that was the best, a governor. (laughs) And it hit me. Isn't it sad that a politician is handling things better than most pastors. There's prophets and pastors right now using their entire 30 minutes and 60 minutes to destroy the integrity of politicians, to demean other nations, to make light of other denominations and groups, to destroy your faith in other people. And a politician said, it's not worth my time to waste my words. It's a shame when we have to ask preachers to act more like politicians when it used to be we wanted some politician to just act like they were saved. Saints, what's happened to the church? The events of the nations. When you look at what's happened in the last We're going to deal with the growth of the church more and more, but I wanted to touch on those first 300 years. That's led to a corruption of thought that has invaded the church. Now what we have, let's jump forward. Let's come to the last 100 years. In the last 100 years, the church and the world has seen great growth. Technology has exploded. Our interconnectedness with nations is off the chains. We can speak to someone in another country just by opening our phone. We can be face-to-face with people around the world. We can have every nation in the world in one Zoom meeting. That is unthinkable 100 years ago. What we would have called fantasy has now become reality. Now, with that expediency of growth has also come another issue. The Bible says something phenomenal. It says, there will come a time in the last days, Excuse me. And that's a term you don't hear me use often because I think most people who use it, they're using it incorrectly. They're using it almost as escape theology. These are the last days we got to get out of here. No. Last days was simply the phrase that the church used as this side of the cross. That's something people need to realize. When you read biblical text and it says last days, it's referring to what's happened in creation since the cross. Because before the cross, they called that former days. After the cross, these are latter days. So the last days are not the days that are supposed to refer to this is how long we have before the world burns to rubble. It's supposed to be the phraseology of this is how much time we have to work 
So let's get to work. Since the cross, we are in the last days. Or what? The last days that the world will be as it is before the Lord takes full ownership. That's what it's about. <laughs> Having said that, let me say one other thing. Most of us, we've read the book of Revelation in a certain way. We read the book of Revelation with fear mindset. I want to say something. Okay, everybody in here, if you got your Bible, open your Bible to Revelation. I promise all of this has to do with where we're going. And, and don't lose heart because we're going to dig into the nations. We're going to get to some of it this week and even next week. We're going we're to talk about this for about four weeks. We're going to do this as a series. We're going to dig into nations. I'm going to start touching on Russia. Next week, we're going to go really, really in-depth in the history of Russia. Then the week after that, we're going to talk about Israel in-depth. We're going to hit certain dates, and we're going to show. And then I'm going to do a full week on just America. The history of the nation, the history of the church in the nation, and why America is so important in the eyes of God. So for all of the prophets who have talked about America's coming to its end, that's a lie. America is over. That's a lie. There is nowhere in God's mind that America had an end date. It never crossed his mind. Two nations, only two nations in the history of the world were created by a sovereign word from God. Israel, when God spoke to Abraham, and America. Now, that's unique. America was sovereignly created by God. Even though our history has some troubling things, it was sovereignly created by God. Why? Because God needed a nation that fully leaned on him. And we did for such a long time. And most of us still do. But America was created separate from Europe so that when Israel got in trouble, there was a nation of believers that held the word of God true so that we would stand for Israel when all the world stood against them. Our creation was to stand with Israel. So don't ever think God is somehow going to get tired of us. Until God gets tired of Israel, America will be in the earth. And I've read my Bible. Israel going to be with God forever. So we're going to be around a long time. You got to stop listening to folk who don't read the whole book. Book of Revelation. If you're looking at it right now, I'm going to do for you what the Lord did for me a few days ago. The Lord said to me, I was in the house, and the Lord said, Michael. I said, yes. <laughs> he said, you know, y'all read Revelation wrong. I said, I know they do. He said, I didn't say they. I said, y'all. You know, I was a little sensitive about the matter. I said, well, I thought I was reading Revelation correctly. He said, no. I said, well, then help me. He said, that's why I'm talking to you. He said, tell me how the book starts. And this is how I spoke it to him. I was sitting on the edge of my bed. I said, and I, John, began to, he said, that's good. That's wrong. I said, that's wrong. He said, I want you to give me the first verse. I said, oh. John says he has a revelation. He says, no, give me the exact wording. Now, what does it say? The first verse of the first chapter, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Stop right there. We have read the book of Revelation to get revelations about the Antichrist. We talk about the seven churches. 
We talk about the woman in the wilderness. We talk about how big the devil is in the last days and which one's the Antichrist. The whole book is about one thing. Everything in the book is an understanding of what's going to be in the earth, what's already happened and some things that shall come. But the whole book is about one person. When he, you read the whole book, it's about there is a king who has always had a kingdom. His kingdom has never been diminished. His kingdom shall forever rule. So when you talk about the Antichrist, remember this, the king is still on the throne. When you talk about the seven churches, the king is still on the throne. When you talk about how bad the world gets, the king is still, the whole book is about the king never lost the kingdom. Stop seeing with fear. Stop reading with fear. The book is about the wonder and the beauty of a king who was never diminished by what happened on earth. Fully in power and fully in charge. And the king is sitting on the throne while things are being revealed to John. And John says, how long shall this go on? And the angel says, what's troubling you? He is worthy. While you are crying, he is worthy. While you're worried, he's still on the throne. The focus has been, we're trying to break down the trials and tribulations that people go through to see what? Our selfish involvement. We have turned the book of Revelation into where do we fit so I'll know when to worry. Rather than how big is Jesus in all of this? Oh, my goodness. If we could ever stop painting ourselves into the story and just let it be about his greatness, you would have peace and not fear. The nations belong unto the Lord, and God is in charge. So now, let's jump forward. We come now to the last hundred years, as I began to say. My goodness. Woo! I tell you, we are going to have to keep this going for a few weeks. We jump forward to where we are now. So the last hundred years, we've seen all these great developments. But what's going on in the nations? Okay. In the nations, what we began to see was also a subtle, slow but intended division of thought. So nations began to divide their agreement where they used to all be allied based on economic reasons. Okay. There was two things that brought nations together. Their geopolitical standing, where they were in the world geologically, and where they stood politically. So how can we benefit each other? So nations agreed based on their benefit. If you can help me, I can help you. Second, they agreed or allied themselves based on religious thought. That's the only two great factors. How much we can do for each other in our realm, geologically or politically, and how much we can benefit each other based on our religious belief. So if you were Muslim, 
you could hate everybody else, but you made sure if it was somebody visiting from a Muslim country, they were received into your country. That's religious. We're Christian, so we had most of our treaties with other Christian nations. You connected politically or religiously. Now, what's happened now over time is people have not paid attention that we have eroded those covenants. If you look at many of the nations where we had strong connection based on our belief in the one true God, in many of those nations, we began to find reasons to divide. Not just America. I want you to look at the history of, the, of, of what's going on the last hundred years. England, that had the greatest empire that we've known of in our age, that it has eroded slowly over time. England's reach was so great because in all of the nations where England planted a flag and it became a commonwealth or a territory, they did what you're supposed to do. They introduced their culture. When they introduced their culture, they always sent people to teach the Bible. When they sent people to teach the Bible, they then began to reform the education system. So the thing that was great about England throughout the nations of the world was there became a phrase. We know they're a good doctor because they've had an English education. We know they're a good teacher because they're an English teacher or they've had English history. So the thing that England did, they took the biblical mandate. Hear how I say this. The biblical mandate for the apostle, the apostolic, the apostle of the fivefold giftings, <coughs> excuse me, the apostle is the only one that is strictly found in the New Testament mindset. The prophet existed in the Old Testament. The teacher existed in the Old Testament. The evangelist existed in the Old Testament. What did the evangelist look like? It looked like a gatherer, someone who was the oracle for the king. They would go out and bring people together and then tell them the time and the season. They would light fires and people to move for different timetables. That's what the evangelist's job is, to take out the word and light the fire under the people for a response. The prophet is not the one who's supposed to light a fire. The prophet is the one who's supposed to change mindsets. But the apostle is a New Testament mindset. Where did it come from? When you talk about an apostille, an apostille is a written letter given to a government representative that is sent out by a king and his job, when he gets to the new territory that's been conquered, he gives this written document to everyone of authority. That written document gives him the power to change the schools, to change the theaters and places of entertainment and to change the way everyone deals with business. And the last thing, to change the military. It's a written document that says he has power from Rome to make this city look like Rome. And when we show up with our army in one year, if the city doesn't look like Rome, we will burn you to the ground. So the authority of the nation was given in a letter. That letter was given to a man or a woman. And that voice went out with the power to change the culture. 
The apostle is not called by God to build a lot of churches. That is not the job of the apostle. The job of the apostle is not to go out and form 50 new ministries every year. The job of the apostle is to become the loudest ruling voice in a culture and transform the thought process, the thinking, the responses of that culture until that culture looks like heaven. So if you've got an apostle and they have not taught you how to be a better family, if you are still parenting like you parented before you ever heard them, if your church still looks like the denomination you came out of, but they now call themselves an apostle, but you still doing church like you always did it, if they call themselves an apostle, but you've got the same divorce rate in your church as you do in your city, if they call themselves an apostle, but the kids in your church are being abused just like the kids outside of your church, that is not an apostle. They have stolen a title, but they are not walking in the governmental power. The power of the apostle is to change the culture. So have they changed your culture? So this is why over the last hundred years, the fight that has been to corrupt the church's thinking has been to get us to go after titles for the purpose of filling our egos so that we could gather people into our barn and chain them to a position we create so that they can make us feel better about being immobile so that we can convince them to applaud us while we fatten them for slaughter instead of to empower them with a kingdom education so that we could push them out of a safe place so that they could go into their jobs, their businesses, their cities, their communities, and transform their neighbors to get their neighbors to think like they think because their neighbors say, your kids act better than mine. Teach me what you're doing. Your business is growing faster than mine. Teach me what you're doing. You have peace when I don't have peace. Teach me what you're doing. So that the culture of the kingdom would become the new ability to inoculate people against bad thinking. We should be, hear what I'm saying. We should be the new virus. <laughs> people should be getting church instead of COVID. We should be causing there to be in the first hundred years of the church, the church infected the world. And now the world has been inoculated against us because we lost our authority, because we became like what we were sent to change. So we have now got to go back to true apostolic teaching, which makes us come out of our comfortable culture into a kingdom mindset and then push people into destiny. Oh, go write your book. Go change your world. Go. Now, the reason, whoo, I, I'm loving this. I don't know, are people getting this? Because I, I left my phone. Okay. The reason we have to go fully into this, the most dangerous thing in the world is an ignorant Christian. The most dangerous thing in the world 
because a Christian with knowledge becomes an intercessor with power, a prophet with strategy, a pastor with a plan, an evangelist with a circuit, a teacher with a goal. If you've got knowledge, how could they stop you? If you know how the world works and you know what the devil's going to do next, then you've already stepped steps ahead of him, which means you're building a wall he can't get through. You're building a city that will bring the glory of God. You're building a generation that will walk in the image of the master. But if you're responding to news instead of creating momentum, you will always be held hostage by your greatest fear or you will be liberated by your greatest belief. Where are you standing? Are you hostage to your fear or are you liberated by your faith? Knowing who we are in God and knowing where the world is sets us free. So for a hundred years, the church has been in a position where the church was growing in great numbers. Christianity became the fastest growing movement in the earth. We've got churches on every corner. There are people who are believers in every nation. Now, the growth of Christianity only had one issue. We grew churches, but we didn't grow people. So now we've got a lot of people who say, well, I'm a Christian, but their depth in God is as shallow as a thimble. Every time trouble comes, they fall. They still harbor in their hearts every ill thought and ill emotion they ever had before they got saved because nobody ever taught them how to go get free. They're still angry at what people did to them before they got born again. And that stuff sits on the edge. So they come to church. Now, here's what happens. If you are a shallow believer and you've never been taught how to go deep into the kingdom, you carry your culture as a defense. And you surround yourself with your nation as your comfort zone. So your culture is your defense. Anytime it gets a little dicey, anytime somebody pushes one of those buttons you're hiding, you hide yourself in your culture. So if you are white or black, Indian, Native American, if you are Hispanic or Jewish, when you begin to get around those who are growing in the kingdom and they begin to confront some of your cultural issues that you feel like you need to hold on to, the first thing in your mind you say is, well, they only act like that because they don't understand where I come from. So you're running back to hide in your color, your culture. When if you would open the Bible, the Bible would say, no, 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 no. What your culture has taught you is illegal in the kingdom. You now have to confront. I can love where I came from, but I can't carry that with me. This can't live in his presence. So the reason, that's all, I love where we're going. So the reason racism, bigotry, class division, sexism, The reason we've got as much abuse against women in the church as we had outside of the church, 
The reason we still are arguing about whether a woman can be a pastor or a prophet or an apostle, the reason we're still arguing about whether we can trust people with authority who God's already anointed is because we carried our cultural issue into the church. Your culture never liked a woman in authority. Your daddy couldn't deal with your mama being smarter than he was. Your grandpa had an issue that your grandmama knew he was stepping out on her. So he abused your grandmama to make her quiet. So you saw that as this is how we have to deal with women. We got to shut them down and shut them up. So you brought into the kingdom that liberates women your culture of holding sisters down. And now you think God is in your sexism. So now you're teaching women to be quiet. A woman should be silent in the church. The Bible never told a woman to be silent in the church apart from a cultural misunderstanding. He was talking to a city where the women had been indoctrinated by idolatry from the temple of Athena and the house of Artemis, where women were taught to be prophets. So if you were a prophet under that idolatry, you always screamed out your prophecy. So when he said women be silent in the church, he wasn't saying they can't teach or prophesy. He was saying to every screaming woman, they're bringing their culture from idolatry into the church. So let them be quiet. But because we didn't study culture, we don't know that Paul was trying to undo 40 years of them serving the wrong gods. That's why he only said it in one letter. Please don't try to pull out of one letter something that was only meant for one people. Because we're not taking that no more. You're going to have to come up with better than that. Because I read my Bible. So let's go back. The head of the college in Israel was named Huldah. In the Old Testament, she was the premier prophet outside of Samuel, who she raised up prophets and ran a college. Read your Bible. Let's jump to the New Testament. Two of the apostles named in the New Testament were women. And because you didn't recognize that they were a woman, you went past their name. But two of them, apostles, two of them. Letters called their name out. Paul only addressed the women who started churches. Because Paul said to the church in the house of, because she was such a powerful woman of God, when persecution came, she kept the church alive in her house. Paul said I, he didn't write one man. And say to the church in his house, he only said to the church in her house, you might want to reread your Bible and loose these women who you are afraid of because that's your culture. That's not the kingdom. And, and let me just touch one more thing. You might want to ask God to heal your identity. Because I've never met a strong man who was afraid of a strong woman. So you got something going on in you that you might want God to heal. Because you putting down your sister is making it real evident to us that you really don't think you know how to lead. 
You might want to let God heal that before God exposes it. Let's go to the next. One of the things that's crept into the church is this whole cultural issue of where we're trying to figure out how much of our color we need to bring out. I want to be clear on something. I said this earlier. I know I'm a black man, but before I'm a black man, I'm God's man. Now, you need to be settled in that because if every sermon you bring, if every message you bring has some cultural thing in it, if you are finding ways to belittle other people's culture so that you can exalt being black or being white or being Latino or being whatever your culture, when you find a way to slowly assassinate other cultures in your preaching, you are making it clear to us that there is still some issue of bigotry or prejudice that's hiding in you. And you're using the pulpit to invite people to the Kool-Aid. See, growing up, we had a term that people may not recognize, but many will. It's called dog whistle. Now, dog whistle language is, you know, when you blow a whistle that only a dog can hear. Okay. If you're training a dog, you have those whistles and you blow that whistle. Humans don't hear it. It's a different frequency. Dog whistle language is when someone says something publicly that most think is innocuous, but to the people they aim it at, they recognize it. Okay. I listen to preachers. There are preachers out there who I love, but in the last three years, they've changed their language. Every message is political now. Every message is always how bad somebody else is. And I realized something. You have to learn this. When people begin to change their language, it is a revelation that they've changed their heart. Out of the abundance of the the mouth, we know what's in you by what you said. Your heart used to be free. Now you're bitter. Your heart used to bless everyone. Now you've decided every nation but Israel is cursed. Your heart used to love everybody. Now you're making it clear. If y'all don't want to come to my church, I don't want you. Where in the world did that come from? So what's happened is we've let the enemy infect our hearts. Now it's caused poison to drip from our tongues. So I want to say to everybody out there, to to all of my white preacher friends, to all of my black preacher friends, to all of my brown preacher friends, to all of my pink preacher friends, to all of my yellow, high yellow, low yellow, whatever, to all of my red, all these colors. What are we doing? When did you leave the kingdom to become a preacher of your color? When did it become necessary for you to remind us that you are who we already knew you were? Preach the kingdom. It unites. It heals. It restores. Preach the kingdom. The only time you hear me bringing up color is I always do it as an invitation to laugh so we can move past the issue. I never use it as a reason to be offended. 
Because most of the time, the people listening to you were never the people involved in what happened to you. Why make folks suffer what they had no hand in? Let the kingdom bring life to you so you can bring life to somebody else. Now, why did I throw that out there? Because we've had this thing so strong in us for so long, racism became part of the political system. And I'm not just talking in America, across the world, because slavery was such a part of the economies of nations. Because slavery was one of the foundations of Western culture in economic transfer. So let me say this. I have friends in Canada and different places who said, we don't understand because we never had slavery be part of us. Well, that's foolishness and that's a lie. Let me tell you how that crept up there. You didn't have slavery with black people, but Canada slaughtered most of the Native Americans that ever set foot on their land. You sent the fur trading companies from England and from France, and they had legal right to butcher, bury, and burn. It was written in the document. Butcher, bury, and burn every Native American who will not sign their land to us. So Native Americans were slaughtered from one end of Canada to another. So it's the same spirit. It was racism. So let's look at the world. Western culture got infected with a racist spirit. Now, it's not absent from Africa. It's not absent from the world because tribes are killing tribes. But that's not racism. That's tribalism. That's a different thing. And we won't teach on that on another day. But the root of racism is cultural identity over the kingdom. It's when you begin to think that my culture is so important. Anybody else has to serve me. That's leaving the kingdom. Because in the kingdom, the only way to be great is to serve everybody else. So the kingdom message got corrupted by that spirit because we had let at the 314-year mark of the church, we let politics in. Politics began to fight over control of the church. The church that got corrupted, that's why we went into what was called the dark ages. And for a thousand years, the church had no power because it swallowed politics. When the church began to spit out the political spirit in that 1415 year mark, around that time, uh, oh, let me look at one of the notes. Around 1453, I love that. That's when the, you call the Reformation begins. That's when Wycliffe, Wycliffe begins the Bible translation in 1170. But when you get to the 1400s and 1517, we get Martin Luther. So 1,000 years after the church gets quiet, the revelation of God begins to kick into the spirit of these men of God who've been reading the word and Martin Luther begins to go by faith, by faith, by faith. It's by faith. It's not by works. It's by faith. It's by faith in God alone, not by works. So Martin Luther realizes what the political spirit has taught them. Bring money to the priest and buy your favor. 
Martin Luther goes, it's not by works. So the priest doesn't get my money. He doesn't need my money. And if this is true, that means the poor can never have place in God's presence because the poor don't have gold. So Martin Luther has a word from God that breaks the political spirit. And he begins to go and he nails to the door the revelation by faith. Suddenly, the kings of the earth get nervous and they want to get rid of Martin Luther. Why? Because your revelation of God cuts the political spirit out of the church. If the political spirit gets cut out of the church, we don't have influence over the people. If we lose influence over the people, we lose their money. If we lose their money, we lose the authority to control them. So everything hinges on who they listen to. And by faith are we saved. Martin Luther begins to shift the weight of the church back to God. When this begins to happen, there's an unraveling. So what begins to happen is the powers of nations begin to understand if we can't Keep the people divided based on what they know about God because they're making the Bible open to all. We've got to give them enemies. So we've got to get people to fight each other for another reason. Why? Because they had us fighting based on what we thought about God. You pull that out of the mix. You've got to create wars based on religious mindsets or race and culture because you can't conquer without a reason. Oh. So we began to find reason to conquer. So every time we heard there was gold in a land, we then said, we're going into that land to collect the gold. I'm talking about Western thought. And when I say Western thought, hear me very clearly. I'm not putting down anybody. I'm just doing what I hope is I want to do a clean survey of some of our history so that we can understand how we got where we are. Because I'm Western. I'm American. I like being American. I'm not trying to move to Africa. I'm not trying to move somewhere else. I like it here. I got air conditioning and I got a refrigerator and I got food. I'm staying. I don't dislike America. I'm not going to beat up on America. But I believe where we've gotten in trouble is we stopped telling the truth. And when the truth ceases to be heard, answers cannot come. You can't make an answer to change something if you won't tell the truth. So when Western culture began to see valuables in nations that it did not own, what had to happen is you have to create a reason to invade. A reason. So what began to be propagated in the religious circles through history was any nation that we see valuables in, the government decides to invade the nation for the gold or the emeralds or the ore. But what did the churches then teach? The churches were told, because you still had a religious authority, the churches were told to preach, we're invading that nation so that we can save the savages from their gods. Ah, <laughs> See, this was always what was taught hand in hand. Now, you need to know that because if we're going to see where God is taking us, we have to understand that when we go now to invade nations with the gospel, if we don't understand that some of the history of invading forces came in with the gospel, 
but then they brought destruction behind them. If we don't admit that we understand that, they won't trust us. When we go in and say we want to build a church and a hospital, I have been on missions where we were going to build a hospital. And the chief of that area came and said, if it was anybody but you, we wouldn't let it be built. I said, you wouldn't let them build a hospital? He said, no, because the last people we let build, they came in and within five years, they ended up killing half the village because they wanted to take over all the land to have a strategic location. And I went, but sir, this is, at that time, I said, this is 2005. I said, you're talking about in the 80s. He said, yes. He said, son, in your lifetime, preachers have come to us. And after the preacher had permission to build the church, soon people sent military to station from the church. Some of us need to understand because you have clean hands and a clean heart does not mean everybody else did. And if you go in without that knowledge and that mindset, then you cannot be a good ambassador for the kingdom of God because you are working from the assumption that people are unfounded in their mistrust of you. So you begin to treat them as though they're ignorant. People have reason for not trusting us. So if we're going to gain their trust so that we can build new thought in culture, so that we can bring transformation to cities, so that we can one day change the course of nations, we have to know what went wrong so that we can go in and build right. Oh, I feel like God is helping us. This is a new day. It's a new way of thinking. And this is how we change nations. We got to get our thoughts right. So because this thing, and I'm, I'm going to have to close with this. I didn't realize we were going this long already. My goodness. So because we had this spirit that was brought into the church, the church didn't bring it in. It was brought to us. The marriage of politics with leaders in the house of God always brings language at the top that God never sent. See, most pastors are wonderful men and women of God who love their flocks because they're not moving at a level where they're trying to get on the stage in front of 10,000. They're not trying to become the next bestseller. They're not, they just want to help their people live and know God. Most pastors' hearts are right. The problem has become that most pastors in the earth are part of organizations that have agendas. And those organizations over time begin to put pressure on them. And that pressure demands an allegiance. And if you reach a certain number, you've got 300 people in your church or 500, then one day there's going to be a visit and there's going to be expectations. And if you're not doing what the other pastors are doing, we're going to have to replace you. That is the political spirit. And that political spirit causes there to be a little fear in the heart of a pastor who just wanted to bless their people. Now, that fear causes you to agree with things you wouldn't agree with. That's where the sexism or the racism or the bigotry gets its foothold. Because you, at the, you hear at the top that they don't like certain cultures. 
So you make sure you never invite anybody of that color into your pulpit because you don't ever want them to hear that you cross that line. And you never promote a woman, even though you know your wife or your daughter or your sister or your friend is anointing called. But you never release them because you never want it to be seen. You don't want this live stream to go out. You don't want somebody to visit that Sunday and take the tape back. We used to be tapes. You don't ever want it, not because you don't believe in them, because you're afraid of that one above you. That political spirit has so intertwined itself that that's what has hamstrung us for so long that we've lived. And many, many pastor friends who are listening, you didn't even know that's what had you hostage because it's been so ingrained. You thought, I'm just going to do what they do so I can be part, so I can do what God sent me to do. The problem is this, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And if you yield to it long enough, you now, my friend, are part of the system you were sent to change. You are part of the problem you were sent to destroy. And one day, you'll stand before a good and loving God who will ask you a simple question. Why did you kill the destiny of the daughters I gave you? Why did you destroy the city I sent you to heal? Why did you find it necessary to let bigotry and racism live in your atmosphere? Oh, Lord, I didn't do that. Oh, you did. Because over the lifetime of your ministry, I had 30 women who you should have raised up and sent out. But you were trying to protect your reputation. And I had a hundred, a hundred different instances of racial violence or prejudice that would have been stopped in your city had you just let somebody of a different color in your pulpit twice a year. Because people who had issues in their heart would have let it go because they were following your lead. Oh, my friends, what shall it be when a good and loving God takes inventory of our quiet rebellion? and our constant indecision. The kingdom deserves better than we've given it. And God deserves better than we've shown him. I don't know. I hope this is helping somebody already. We're touching on it. We're getting to it. I promise you next week, I, I, I had three pages of notes on Russia. I got all these notes on Israel. I didn't even get to them. So next week, the entire program is going to be digging into looking at Russia and what's going on. My goodness. And so, my friends, just so you know, Russia has just begun bombing the Ukraine. So right now, Father, we lift up the Ukrainian people. We lift up and we pray for them, and we ask that you would release your hand and your glory. We pray, God, that you would stop. We ask you to put and end before it can even begin. Lord God Almighty, turn things. Silence the voice of the enemy. Silence the voice of wickedness. God, in the name of Jesus, there are believers in the nation of the Ukraine who are calling upon your name, so we lock our faith in with theirs. We say in the name of Jesus, we agree with them. Let a wall of protection be lifted. Loose angels from glory. In the name of Jesus. 
We ask for your hand of protection and for the gates of mercy. Be merciful. Bring them in underneath your hand. And God, I ask you right now. Yes, Lord, I hear you. I pray that you would breathe upon those men and women in the Russian military. Breathe on them. Wake them up. Wake them up. I pray, Lord, no matter how deeply they've been indoctrinated, you own the mind, the heart, and the lungs. Wake them up. Let multitudes of them right now wake up and say, I cannot do this. This is not the way. Wake them up, God. I pray, wake up generals. Wake up leaders in the Russian military. In the name of Jesus, Father, stir them and cause hearts to turn. And Father, only you have power. Stand and speak as only you spoke to Nebuchadnezzar. You turned him. Speak to Putin. In the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for a right mind in a wrong body. We thank you, Lord, for right decisions in the wrong atmosphere. Turn him where he needs to go. And we give you glory, and we thank you in advance that all things are in your hand. We praise you. Bless your people. Cover your people. In Jesus' mighty name. And we thank you in advance. Oh, yes, Lord. I thank the Lord because all night as we were talking, I kept going, Lord, but we hadn't got to the notes on Russia. And the Lord kept saying to me, you need to wait. Because next week when you start talking, people will understand what's going on. I thank God for his voice. Then I say to you, be in prayer. Stay before the Lord. But this weekend and this coming Wednesday, make sure you're listening. My goodness, I almost forgot. This weekend, I'm preaching at a Russian church. Yeah, in New Jersey. The church I'm going to is a Russian church. They set that up months ago. They asked me nearly a year ago, would I come? So the church I'm going to is all Russian people. Yes. So God, I thank you. I thank you for this. I thank you that your voice and your spirit shall touch and be upon your people. All things are in your hand. Only you set up things like this. So we give you glory in advance in Jesus' name. And they're even watching. I knew they were watching tonight. I'd almost forgot that. I speak blessing over you. We're looking forward to coming with you. I thank God that God has something unique and fantastic for you. And for those of you who are from Russia, I'm praying for your families, for your safety, and for the word of the Lord to be loose to you, that you would speak what he has for you to speak. We love you, we bless you, and we'll be with you soon. Amen.